Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me this week, uh, as we've had for the last few weeks, I have two guests on the podcast. The first is Nick Greenwood, the manager of the MIGO Global Opportunities Trust, who specializes in looking for undervalued opportunities in amongst the smaller brethren in the investment trust sector, who's been on before. And also by Matt Hose, who is the alternative assets analyst at the investment bank and brokerage Jefferies. At the time of recording, which is uh, Friday afternoon, we've had a uh, interesting week. It's been two days of gains for the investment trust sector and two days of declines. And today the sector looks to be uh, trading pretty much in line. But this is before the US market has opened. Uh, but generally speaking, overall, it's been something of a down week so far. And the average discount on the investment trust sector has widened out a little bit to just under 11% compared to 106 at the end of last week. Year to date, the investment trust sector was down this morning at 14.9%, which compares with a 2.2% decline in the all share index. Obviously, this has been a week dominated in the UK by a period of mourning for the Queen following her death. And it's also we've seen some important announcements from the UK government reiterating its commitment to going for growth with a very active pro-growth policy it's hoping to push through. Uh, and part of that will be some uh, significant changes in energy policy, uh, confirming the go-ahead for the latest Sizewell nuclear power plant, and also saying it wants to bring back fracking as a potential source of future energy supplies in this country. We've seen continued increases in interest rates. Bond yields have been edging up this week. They're up to getting on for 4% in the shorter end of the US Treasury market. And gilt yields have been rising, while sterling has again come under a little bit of pressure uh, and is finishing the week a little lower than it was at the end of last week. After a few relatively quiet weeks, uh, we've had an absolute plethora of news announcements from the investment trust sector this week. Too many to cover in the podcast, along with my two guests' comments on this week's developments. So I'm going to briefly just list them later on, together with one or two items of corporate news. And we've seen a couple of planned IPOs uh, this week, which is a interesting development, both in the alternative asset space, independent living REIT and the other sustainable farmland trust, We'll talk about those uh, briefly, but also some interesting corporate developments, not least the uh, announcement that uh, Fundsmith, the uh, fund management company run by Terry Smith, is uh, intending to resign as the investment manager of Fundsmith Emerging Equities Trust, ticker FEET, F-E-E-T, uh, and that has prompted the board of directors to put forward a proposal to liquidate the trust by the end of November and return the money to shareholders. So more on one or two of the results uh, a little later. A reminder, of course, that you can find a link to every single announcement made by an investment trust this week uh, if you are a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, where in addition you'll find our normal tables of the, the week's main movers in share price, NAV uh, and discount terms. So it's time now to talk to Nick Greenwood. When we spoke a little earlier this year, Nick, or the last time we spoke a couple of months ago, we said that uh, the markets were going to carry on being volatile. 
and investment trusts in particular were likely to still be under pressure as long as the uh, the big market forces were against them. Here we are at the end of the summer holidays. The big boys are meant to have come back from the beach and the markets are still very choppy and pretty uncertain about where they're going to go. What's your sort of take coming back to the markets uh, at this point in time? Um, I think where I differ from consensus is that I think the restriction or the, the effect of quantitative tightening will be more severe, uh, more brutal than people are expecting, but it will be played out over a much shorter time horizon. The reason I say that is that, you know, I've been in the markets for oh, four decades now. I did actually say something the other day, four generations, which might sort oh, of... Slightly uh, overstating it, but... <laughs> yeah, slightly overstating it. But, you know, earlier in the career, before the debt was uh, in the system, you know, a 75 basis point interest rate movement wouldn't have had that much effect. Well, now it has an enormous amount of effect, given how much, you know, governments and consumers, etc., are borrowed. And therefore, I think the effect on the economies will be more severe, probably underestimated by markets at the moment. But it'll all be over relatively quickly because the modest rate rises we're seeing will have quite a big effect. And, you know, go back 20, 30 years ago, they just wouldn't have the same effect. You'd need much bigger interest rate rises to get the economy um, uh, calming down. I mean, we need to distinguish here between, I guess, the UK and the world. I mean, there's the global markets, which are very much influenced by uh, interest rate movements and so on. And in the UK, we've got this new government, of course, with Liz Truss and the Chancellor, who said that they're absolutely committed to go for growth, which hasn't been a great thing for uh, Tory governments in the past when they've tried to do that. And you've been around long enough to remember 1992. I mean, do you think there is a risk that if the markets do decide they don't like the big spending plans that we're seeing in the UK, that we might just get a rerun of 1992. Remember when John Major tried to stem the attack from George Soros and others and uh, had to retreat with his tail between his legs. Do you think there's a realistic chance of that? Oh, yes. I mean, we're borrowing vast amounts. You know, we had to borrow a vast amount to cope with the effects of the pandemic. And now with the fuel crisis, at some point, you know, a lot of this will be done by borrowing money, you know, there's no guarantee the lenders will be up for that. The more you borrow, the riskier it is. And, you know, you may find that reflected in rising gilt yields and, and weak sterling. We just don't know, but it's a, it's a significant risk. Certainly, I think over the next few weeks, we're going to find out whether the markets do can stomach it or not. I think that's uh, certainly true. I mean, gilt yields have been rising and they've got a lot of debt to issue, as you said. Mm. But in terms of the investment trust sector, again, when we spoke before, you were talking about uh, the fact that as far as some of the things that you own, and indeed across the sector overall, that the discounts have got to pretty extraordinary uh, depths, if I can put it that way. And uh, that's still the case. Oh, yes. You know, in, in the days gone by, I mean, a 20% discount would be quite high. We've certainly seen within our portfolio, you know, the 30s and the odd 40s now on things that are not basket cases. You know, you occasionally had extremely wide discounts if something was sort of um, was a challenged or, or a broken vehicle. But these things are, are just out of favour or there's just more sellers and buyers that's leaving these discounts. I think the background is that what we're seeing, and particularly in any investment trust with market value of, say, below half a billion, is that um, the traditional owner, which was the sort of big chains, you know, the, the Bruins and the Investex, et cetera, have got ever larger and, and it is difficult for them to, to own investment trusts. And therefore, slowly but surely, their presence on registers is, is declining. Much of that, until you know, recently, has been finding its way into onto the platforms. You know, typically the self-directed investor is the sort of natural buyer now of small and medium-sized investment trusts. But you know, what we've seen in recent months, with the particularly you know since the war in in Ukraine, is that we've seen we've still got the drip drip coming out of the out of the big chains, 
But the, the risk appetite amongst self-directed investors sort of disappeared. It, it, it may have come back a little bit in June and July. So the new natural buyer isn't buying and you've still got a little bit of selling. You know, what you typically see is very low levels of turnover, but what turnover there is is selling. And the market makers don't particularly want to take on, on more stock onto their books, given we're in a quantitative tightening period, and therefore share prices just drift lower. So on the one hand, that's bad news. I mean, it would be a shame if you know some of these uh, private retail investors who've come into the market, come into the investment trust sector and help to keep it so buoyant. If they take fright and disappear, that would be uh, unfortunate. But the message has to be um, that there's also opportunities out there. And of course, and that's what you're looking for as well in terms of these big discounts. Yeah, it's fantastic if you're uh, looking for opportunities. And um, the strong run you get running a fund of investment trust tends to start at the foundations of that or when, you, when you've got a landscape with lots of very wide discounts. And you're, you know, you're looking to capture sort of the rising NAVs and the narrowing discounts, which is you know, quite a powerful combination. So, yes, it's ideal for us because this period will pass. The new investors aren't disappearing. They're just sitting on their hands because they're a little bit uncertain uh, as to uh, what the coming weeks will bring. And yet, I suppose another encouraging feature is that we actually are now seeing a bit more fundraising again coming to the market. We haven't had, obviously, uh, any IPOs this year to mention, uh, but we've been uh, some secondary issues in the alternative sector. And they're starting again. This week, we heard from the Sustainable Farmland Trust is hoping to raise about 200 million in sterling to invest in a, basically a US farmland fund. And then we've heard that uh, Pantheon Infrastructure is going to be raising some more money and so on. Then, of course, there's also um, a company called Independent Living REIT, which is uh, planning to float as well, hoping to raise $150 million from an IPO, uh, even though that's in a sector, obviously, which has had some issues recently, you know, with uh, Civitas, social housing and so on. It's a different model to them. But in terms of that, would you take that as an encouraging sign? I mean, you don't participate in a lot of IPOs or, or new placings, but um, will you be having a look at any of these? And what do you think about the fundraising future from here? We tend to look at the, I mean, we buy overlooked and unloved funds. And clearly, when you're an IPO, you're, you're not overlooked and unloved. But we will very often sit in on group sessions or whatever, because these things are moving into our universe. And, you know, everything falls out of favour at some point. So it's, it's important that we, we know them and, um, and get a feel for what they're doing. I think the, the, the general point is that we, what we're continuing to see is a steady decline in long-only equity funds in the closed-ended world, but being replaced by asset classes, which absolutely do need to be traded in a closed-ended structure. Because, you know, for example, with the new launch of the US Farmland Trust, if it was open-ended and you're getting redemptions, you know, I'm not sure what you're supposed to do, sell a couple of fields or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, those have to be closed-ended. But long-only equity funds, unless they're really using the capital structure or they're doing something different, then you know what investors are getting is sort of discount volatility and, and the hassle of building and selling shares. So unless you're getting something in return, there's not a lot of point. And we will continue to see the demise of a, of a few of the traditional long-only equity funds. So, yeah, it's a, quite a rapid change in the, in the sector. Now, most of what you do, you're looking obviously mostly amongst the uh, smaller capitalisation trusts, uh, looking for those which have got, uh, you know, big discounts or other issues you say overlooked or misunderstood. I can't just let pass though. We had some results this week from uh, Third Point Investors, which is ticker TPOU, which produced some uh, interim results for the six months and was way down 22.6% compared with with 20% for the S&P 500. Now that was one you used to own, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. No, I mean, we we bought it in the aftermath of the pandemic. It's run by a very well-known hedge fund manager called Dan Loeb. He's traditionally been an active investor. He's, he's attacking Disney at the moment. So you can see that he's quite a big fish, even on Wall Street. 
you know, as I remember, it, it got out for about a 30 discount at that point. Um, it had a very poor period of performance as Loeb had sort of stepped away from the controls and his protégé had um, stepped in. The hedges didn't work and uh, Dan Loeb retook the reins. So we, we took a bet that the vehicle may not exist in the longer term if it stayed on a 30 discount and that we felt he was, you know, well capable of actually turning the thing around. And it all came to pass and um, we took some very nice profits on that. I think our main concern and the triggering of the sale was he had a lot of um, very early stage growth stocks, things like Rivian, the electronic vehicles business, and Upmost, which is sort of software for um, lending. You know, these things are like many early stage growth stocks were trading on, on many, many multiples of income, let alone earnings and, and certainly not having earnings. And they'd been so successful, they'd become a big part of the portfolio and they were locked in. So at that point, we were concerned and we exited. And that's well, a classic example of the sort of things we look at. And do you think just on that, I mean, obviously one of the big issues around Third Point and also around Pershing Square Holdings and so on has been the big discounts, which you say, which they they were at and they have come in a little bit, at least in the case of Third Point. But do you think it's actually feasible for those kind of big uh, US kind of hedge fund managers to actually get their shares back to par or anything close to par? It's possible, but you do need to have your feet in the ground in the UK. And if you look at some of these, they are, you know, particularly Pershing Square, very, very big. And therefore, there's a lot of supply that needs to be mopped up. But it's doable. There's no structural reason why they can't. And I know Pershing Square have got more involved in marketing in the UK. So, But it's a big challenge, given that it might not be a, a natural holding for the wealth managers. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of stock about. But um, no reason why they can't. But you know, we don't own um, either at the moment. I mean, there's sometimes a feeling that these uh, big hedge fund managers, particularly the US ones, how shall I put it... Um, they're sometimes quite pleased with themselves. And there's been some issues around the way they treat their shareholders, particularly in the case of Dan Loeb. But uh, they all seem to be uh, trying to do better anyway. But uh, we'll have to see how that works out. Well, what else can we talk about this week where you're, you can help us uh, understand what's going on? Let's talk about a trust, actually, which has actually reported this week. And that is uh, Baker Steel Resources Trust. They've had some interim results up to six months to 30th of June, as most uh, other trusts. Uh, and their NAVP share was down by 18% to 80.4p, which doesn't compare that well with their uh, the global mining index that they follow. The share price was down a bit less as the discount narrowed. Uh, what do you think about that one? you still own that one? Oh, we still own that one, yeah. I mean, the important distinction is it is probably more mining finance or developing of mines rather than operating mines. So at the moment, you know, with, with commodity prices of certainly had a reasonable run over over recent months. If you actually operate a mine, it's been quite good. But if you're trying to develop a mine, when there's uh, not a lot of finance around to to develop mines, um, you just end up with an interesting prospect that isn't converting into a mine. So it's a very, very different vehicle from most of the uh, stocks you'd find in the mining index. When the markets were open, funding was available, they did actually manage to move three of their projects on to the next stage and raise money which was Tungsten West, which is a, a tungsten mine in Devon, of all places, which is the third biggest resource in the world. And where the world is changing, and you know, we were disappearing into a new West and, and, and East, you know, Russia and China perhaps going in different directions, the biggest two resources are both in China. So the way the world is panning out, this could be the um, uh, the largest mine in the Western world. So they managed to IPO it. They've had a, a bit of a full start because you know, it's a fairly power-intensive process and that uh, you know, gas and electricity prices have gone through the roof, and therefore they're going to have to, to stop pools and develop their own solar and wind to provide power to the mine. But that's all fixable. They've got a, a tin mine called First Tin in, in Saxony that managed to IPO, 
and they sold a potential gold mine in Zimbabwe to another mining house who will then go and develop it. That's their natural business. They've got the intellectual capital. They develop the mine, they get all the permissions, and then they sell it on to big business who then actually build a mine. So it faces the the, the situation where you know finance for developing mines is just not available at the moment, so they're going to have to sit on their hands and they have some, some, some pretty interesting deposits. Talking about energy in the broader sense as well, I mean, obviously, huge things have happened this year in terms of uh, what the Russians have done with uh, weaponizing the price of gas and the impact that's going to have on the West. And it's already leading to some changes in energy policy by governments, including, you know, the new UK government's given the go-ahead for Sizewell and wants to do more fracking and so on. Now, you've been investing in uh, uranium through investment trusts in the sector, uh, and they've been doing pretty well, haven't they? They've been performing quite well for you. So uh, you did those before we knew about the Ukraine war, but it does seem to be uh, they're operating with some quite big tailwinds behind them now. Yes, I mean, nuclear power's been in the wilderness really since Fukushima, the accident in, in 2011. And uh, for a long period of time, the uranium price has been around $25. And that's way below what's needed to actually develop a mine. So I mean, there's an old saying in the mining industry, the cure for low prices is low prices, in that if, if a, a price of a mineral stays low for a long period of time, no one's going to be looking for it. And then the existing sources become exhausted. And then there's a shortage. And then, then we have high prices. So we have that sort of situation with uranium. And demand is picking up um, because it's it's moving back into the mainstream. And you know, Japan has been a key driver of sentiment towards uh, nuclear power in recent weeks, and, and explains why you know you've had quite a bit of strength because Japanese, given what's happened in the Second World War, given Fukushima, are much more cautious about nuclear power than many other countries. But the sentiment in in recent weeks and months has gone from very against um, nuclear power to getting very high gas and electricity bills, as we have here, to thinking, well, we'll reopen some nuclear power stations. So public opinion has swung towards that way. And in the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about building nuclear power stations in Japan. So the move in sentiment is absolutely incredible. There's two areas that could squeeze the the, the price of uranium higher. One is that a, a lot of countries are keeping open nuclear power stations that were due to close. And those won't have the uranium in place. You know, they'll have to go into the market and, and buy it. You mentioned size well, that will probably take at least seven years, probably longer, to build. And in that sort of time horizon, you can develop a uranium mine because it's not a it's not a scarce mineral. Um there's plenty of it, but nobody's really been looking for it. But the squeeze comes from, you know, if Japan switches on another twelve nuclear reactors, then they have to go out into the market because they haven't got a uranium supply for that period. The other thing which isn't really talked about much is that the Soviet bloc, or what we like to call the sort of the new regimes, you know, 45% of uranium is mined in Kazakhstan, which comes under the Russian sphere of influence. So there's every possibility that if Putin wants to do what he's done with gas, with uranium, he could do that. And that's not really being talked about. So that could see a, a, a squeeze higher in the price of uranium. So I think you have exposure to that through uh, a couple of trusts uh, you own, I think, well, you did own when I last looked, Yellow Cake and uh, Geiger Counter. What's been happening to those uh, trusts? I mean, share prices have done well, but uh, is that because of discount narrowing or is it because of uh, improving NAV prospects? What uh, What's the story? Yeah, they're very different vehicles. I mean, Yellow Cake just owns physical uranium and, and therefore the price, although the discount does swing around quite a bit, you know, the, the NAV moves in lockstep with the price of uranium, which is gone up a bit but you know hasn't been galloping higher whereas Geiger counter owns mines or, or, or mines that are under development and therefore there's much more operational gearing in there and therefore that one moves around quite spectacularly and I think you know the shares bottomed at sort of 
37 a few months ago and uh, are back up into the mid-50s. So it's quite good to own both because the return profiles are quite different, but they're both exposed to uranium. In the case of Geiger Counter, it had been trading on a premium, or quite a significant premium for a long period of time. And more recently, it's been trading on a discount. So actually, the reverse is true there. That it, you know, We've seen um, the share price struggle relative to the uh, progress in the NAV. OK, another one that is reported this week, as it happens, a completely different sector where now we're talking about Dunedin Enterprise, which is an interesting uh, trust in the private equity sector. They've had some interim results out, but of course, that's not the main story with this one. But their NAV total return was plus 4%, and the share price total return was 9.4% as the discount narrowed into around, I think they said about 11%. But this is one, of course, which you've owned, I know, and uh, which effectively is being wound down. I think I've got that right. Are you pleased with the progress that's being made there? Yes, I mean, this is one of our largest holdings. Even though we've had a, a vast amount of money handed back over the years as a sort of slow liquidation has been um, taking place, we sort of call it the gift that keeps giving. Because going back, and it's probably five, six, maybe longer ago that years, the, the company had a bit of a rough period and um, you know, shareholders and the board put it into a slow and orderly realisation. But since that very disappointing period, everything they've touched has seemed to turn to gold. And a lot of their investments have turned out to be spectacularly successful. And therefore, we've had some very decent returns, especially if you look at the five-year numbers on Dunedin Enterprise. It's some, uh, way, way higher than you know the, the general small cap indices. And just recently, they sold Red, which is an IT staffing contractor for a significant amount of money. So it's now getting to the point where probably once that transaction completes, half the NAV is sat in cash waiting to be handed back to shareholders. Yet it still trades on a not insignificant discount. So uh, a bit of an unusual one. You have to feel sorry for them because um, literally since the uh, they got put into realisation, it's been an incredibly successful, uh, you know, the portfolio's had a fantastic run. And um, yet they've been having to liquidate what's now been, a, you know, proved to be a very successful trust. And how long can it go on giving though? I'm just having a quick look here. The market cap is around 68 million. Uh, obviously, it was much bigger than that before. Presumably, though, the last thing to be got rid of will be the hardest things to get rid of, presumably. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we, were, we were thinking it would be the oil stocks. You know, they have a, a couple of um, oil service companies in there uh, that have obviously had a tough time for years. But uh, with this one, it just, as I say, when you come around to selling and then the, then the oil price is through the roof and suddenly there's lots of demand for oil services again. So, uh, Yes, it's been an extraordinary ride, this one. Let's move on then and talk about something which perhaps has been also an extraordinary ride, but not such a good one, which everybody wants to talk about. And we're talking about, again, in the private equity sector. I mean, the travails of Chrysalis on the one hand, and the fact that many other private equity trusts uh, of which you own, uh, you own at least one, I know, they're still struggling to get their discounts to narrow. They're trying to make a bigger effort to do so. And of course, they're out there making very positive noises. Do you think that problem of the big discounts at the private equity trust is going to be uh, solvable anytime soon? And what's been the experience with, uh, with obviously, with your holdings? Well, I think it might be years rather than months. I mean, it, it is one of our themes. I described earlier what was happening with smaller trusts or with a lot of investment trusts in that you had steady selling from the wealth managers and you know buying from these from the self-directed investor and therefore low turnover. But what turnover was was selling. In the private equity houses or the private equity trusts, you, you've got a source of selling that other trusts don't have in that um, they typically have high OCFs. And the recent rules changes means that um, some types of investor, you know, those, particularly those that operate models or, or fund of funds, have to declare the underlying costs in addition to their own costs in their funds. And you know, particularly um, successful private equity tr- trusts that have got profit shares in there that can appear incredibly expensive. 
And some of these buyers or some of these owners, their business models don't really give them the opportunity to to explain to customers that these numbers, it's a, it's a methodology and, and partially illusory. And therefore, that those will have to come off the register. And so therefore, there is steady selling for that type of investor. We just take the view that we do love it when um, people are selling us stocks for non-investment reasons. But it could take quite a while to work its way through the system. You know, off the top of your head, you, let's just say that um, typically 15% of a shareholder of a particular trust were affected by this, and maybe half of those shares have already been sold. That's quite a bit of selling yet to uh, to work its way through the system. But once that type of selling is exhausted, you know, you, you probably expect this sector, depending on what the outlook is at the time, to move back to their sort of typical discount range of 15 to 20. So some of these are very well run and have, and have been incredibly successful, but we believe they'll continue to be so. So you know, we, we've got the benefit of, as I said before, a rising nav and, and a narrowing discount. But I suspect this is sort of 18 months or two year term, but we're quite happy to watch paint dry. You know, we're quite happy to sit on these situations as so long as we can see the catalyst for change and why it will change. So the ones you own, I think, from memory, you've got NB Private Equity Partners and uh, you also own Oakley Capital Investors. Those are the two big bets, yeah. They're the two big bets, yeah. Mm. So you're happy with those? Very much Happy as you can be. Yeah, and and in fact, Oakley's a bit like Dunedin has has produced positive numbers earlier on in the year in in a sector that's been quite challenged. So, uh, yeah, no, we're we're very happy. You know, high OCF stocks are quite a big theme in the portfolio because, as I said before, there is structural selling there, um, which is not investment related. Right, and that's what you're looking for, yeah. Yeah. And what about Chrysalis? What are your views about that now? I mean, it's probably getting interesting. I mean, I looked at it the other day and thought, well, maybe not yet. Come back to it if it falls another 10%. And then I just noticed it's done that and more in the last few days. <laughs> the gift that doesn't keep on giving, yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it has been a spectacularly successful investment for us because we backed it at launch. Unfortunately, we, we sold virtually all of our holding when prices just got excessive. For the same reasons that we sold Third Point. You know, a lot of this early stage stuff were just on ratings that, I don't remember seeing since the old TMT in 2000 or whatever. So probably having been around in the TMT bubble was very helpful at this stage to to cut some of these early stage positions. I think that the problem there is that there's some good holdings in the portfolio, but there's a lot of selling around. You know, I think you know Jupiter probably need to sell because they have a, a, a large holding and um, sat in the open-ended funds and those open-ended funds have a difficult time of probably getting redemptions. So you know, they will probably need to be selling down their holding. And also, whenever we go out and update our shareholders and wealth managers and people who are interested in the trust world, they always ask about Chrysalis. It's the one thing we're most asked about. And I suspect a lot of these advisors have Chrysalis in the portfolio and would be looking to sell, maybe not because they think it's um, the wrong price or it's an unattractive investment. It's just that if you go back, you know, I was a private client stockbroker up until the mid-90s, and I sort of remember we used to have a term that described some trades as killing the dog. Because you, if you had a really spectacularly poor holding in, in a client's portfolio, and they, in those days they would come in and see you twice a year to review the portfolio. That's all they wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah, in the modern era, you'd spend 55 minutes talking about yeah. chrysalis, even if the portfolio as a whole had done well, and therefore it's better to kill the dog before the client comes in. I'm sure that it doesn't work like that in the, in the wealth management world these days, but... Uh, I think that kind of selling, there's, there's a lot of stock that needs to be sold, and that's why we've stepped back. Finally, I was going to ask you about some other interesting things in your portfolio that uh, would be interesting to hear your thoughts on. I mean, I've noticed that uh, some of your holdings in uh, Asia and the Far East have been performing quite well, including one or two surprises. You've got a Vietnamese trust. You've got this interesting uh, Macau trust. You might tell us what that does. And uh, you also own Georgia Capital. 
They're certainly close geographically to Russia and, and China, which have both been problem areas. But uh, tell us about those and what's been happening there. These are really in the kind of niche, some niche areas here. Well, let's start off with Macau Props. I mean, it owns seriously upmarket apartments in Macau. Obviously, Macau has been struggling in the last few years since the pandemic because with a lockdown in China, there's not many customers for the casinos in Macau. And it's traded, you know, I mean, the shares got down to the high 30s, despite the NAV being off the top of my head, maybe 120, 130. So it's been on an extreme discount simply because, you know, it's got debt in on the balance sheet and therefore that will need to be repaid at some point. And nobody is wanting to rent flats in a former Portuguese colony where the casinos are shut. But they have sold three or four apartments in the last month or two. And I think that just means that the market actually has started to believe the NAV. You know, because these apartments were sold at a 6% discount to NAV. Well, if the shares are trading on a 50 or 60 discount and they actually start selling the assets at 6% discount and getting hard cash for them, um, I think people have taken up, sat up and taken notice, despite the fact that nothing's improving in Macau. You know, the Chinese are still in lockdown. But it's just really a case of our day job is trying to work out what the NAV really is and what the assets could be sold for. And um, you know, these flats are probably the, the nicest ones in Macau. And therefore, some people are obviously taking a view that they'd like to own one and that the world will get better. Georgia Cap just hasn't been able to get a following. Again, it's another trust that trades at an extreme discount. I mean, I think at the moment you'd be trading in the region of, of a 60% discount. Now, part of that historically is that, a bit like in the case of Macau, the market hasn't believed the NAV or they haven't been able to prove the NAV. And more recently, having a long border with Russia has not really helped sentiment, especially when uh, Georgia went to war with Russia in 2008. They sold the water system in Tbilisi literally about three days before the Russian invasion, you know, at a big premium to what they were carrying it in the books, which you know hopefully would have proved that you, know, you could believe the NAV and it really is trading on a, on a 60 discount. But since then, you know, nobody particularly wants a single country fund with a border on Russia, despite the fact that the, the portfolio has been performing incredibly well and the local economy is is incredibly strong we just wonder as it hasn't got a following as it trades on a very wide discount whether the the backers and the and the people involved who own a lot of stock might rather just see the thing liquidated at some point obviously not in the coming weeks or months but if you're sat there working in that business and you've got a let's say a million pounds worth of shares or million pounds worth of shares at asset value and it's in your portfolio at 400 grand, um, you're not going to be selling in the market. You're going to be looking to um, to wind the thing down. So a bit speculative on our part there, but I can't see that it will gain much of a following. No fault of its own. I mean, it's performed extraordinarily well. We sort of joke that it's a small investment trust that owns an Eastern European country, but uh, that's not such an exaggeration. I think it actually represents about 5% of GDP. So, uh, yeah. And it's got a large holding in the Bank of Georgia. And if you just look at the screen, you'll see that Bank of Georgia has been a great performer in recent months. And therefore, the next NAV is likely to be higher again. But again, it's the sort of thing that a wealth manager might struggle to, to justify in a client portfolio because the clients might take fright at something like that being in their portfolio. But for us, we can own it and um, we can hold it in a, in, a, in a highly diversified portfolio. And finally, the Vietnam Vina Capital you own, ticker VOF. Yeah, I mean, we'd like there to be a sort of macro view on the things we invest in, but we also need a sort of special situations element to it. And, and Vietnam is the classic example. Um, it's a big beneficiary of the trade war between China and the US and a big beneficiary of, of lockdown because multinationals are diversifying their supply lines and their manufacturing. They can't pull out of China because they're so embedded in it. But for example, the latest Apple Watch factory will be in Vietnam and therefore a lot of new investment will be finding its way to Vietnam. The other thing is that the two investment trusts that we own are FTSE 250 constituents in their own right. 
This is the legacy of, of around 2005, 2006, when Vietnam was one of the most fashionable destinations on the planet. And a number of closed-ended funds were launched and raised insane amounts of money. So the legacy is, as I said, that these two trusts are FTSE 250 constituents in their own right, which dwarfs current demand for Vietnamese assets. But the boards of both trusts recognise the oversupply situation and are buying in aggressively, buying in shares for cancellation. So the way we see it going forward is that our view on Vietnam will gain greater acceptance, which will create more buyers of shares in these investment trusts, at the same time as the number of shares available in these investment trusts is steadily shrinking. At some point out there, there'll be a tipping point, and they won't be trading on a 20 discount, they'll be trading on a 2 discount. So that was Nick Greenwood, uh, with some interesting comments about where we are and some of the anomalies that are appearing in the investment trust sector. A very brief now mention of some results this week, and we're not going to go through them in detail. I'm just going to say that if you do want to read them all, uh, I'm going to pick out one or two, but uh, you can find a link to all of them in the Moneymakers Circle via the website. But among those conventional equity trusts uh, reporting this week, we've heard uh, results from uh, Midwind, Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income, BH Macro, Third Point Investors, that's uh, Nan Loeb's uh, hedge fund venture, RTW Venture, the biotech investor, Middlefield Canadian Income, BlackRock Latin America, Schroederation Total Return, Baker Steel Resources, we've mentioned, Gulf Investment and Weiss Career Opportunity. Some of those I'm sure you'll be familiar with. And then amongst the Alternative Asset Trust reporting, we've heard from uh, HG Capital Trust in the private equity sector, and also from uh, these trusts, uh, Honeycomb, that's a debt uh, trust, Regional REIT, Commercial Property, Digital Nine Infrastructure, one of the new digital infrastructure trusts, Greencoat Renewables in the renewable sector, Biopharma Credit, another debt fund, VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities, which again has been reporting in the renewable sector, Foresight Solar, Ditto, Aquila Energy Efficiency, Downing Renewables and Infrastructure, Ecofin US Renewables Infrastructure, NB Global Monthly Income, another debt fund, and Doric Nimrod One, one of the aircraft leasing companies which is uh, about to give its last plane back to uh, the Emirates airline and will be going out of business too. So all details on all those on the Moneymakers website. The two new trusts that have announced their attention to list uh, have been mentioned already. Independent Living REIT which is managed by Atrato who uh, also managed supermarket income, a very successful alternative asset trust. That's looking for up to 150 million to invest in high quality supported housing targeting returns between 7 and 10%, including a 5% yield. That one is open to retail investors via most trading platforms. And then secondly, we have the Sustainable Farmland Trust, uh, seeking 200 million sterling with a target return of between 7 and 9%, including a 4.5% yield. The trust is uh, aiming to build a diverse portfolio of mostly US farmland assets, and the issue will be announced on the 10th of October. Uh, with trading in the shares expected to start on the 12th of October, assuming that it gets to its target. And then finally, we've heard from uh, Panthea Infrastructure, uh, which wants to raise 250 million via a C-share issue at 100p, uh, having now committed all the funds it raised in its November 2021 IPO. The proceeds of that issue are expected to be deployed within six months, with the C-shares due to begin trading on the 11th of October. Uh, finally, amongst the corporate news, along with the announcement about Fundsmith Emerging Equities Trust, 
being liquidated. There's been some activity at uh, VPC's specialty lending investments, ticker VSL, where a couple of shareholders, institutional shareholders, have written an open letter proposing the introduction of a periodic 100% realisation opportunity. Uh, And that would replace the 25% tender offer that uh, the board of this trust committed to undertake following the 2023 AGM. Uh, This is another debt investment trust, of course, and not perhaps widely followed by retail investors. Uh, Over the last three years, this trust has traded an average discount of 21.3%, and that's uh, one of the reasons why shareholders are pressing for more uh, decisive action by the board. Next, then, it's time to talk to Matt Hose, the Alternative Asset Analyst at uh, the investment banker broker Jefferies. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. A lot going on in your sector, but most of the attention in alternatives, I think, is about what's going to happen in the uh, renewable energy and infrastructure space, given what the UK government is doing and given what is going on in the wider world in terms of governments trying to reorient their energy strategy. I'm right. I expect that you've been getting an awful lot of uh, inquiries about this. I'd be interested to know what you've been saying. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, Good to be here. Uh, yeah, that's certainly right. There's been um, a lot of activity on the renewable funds stemming from this announcement of the government's energy support package. I mean, just to jog back, what the government has basically said is they've begun negotiations with domestic and international energy suppliers to agree long-term contracts to reduce the price they charge. Those suppliers also crucially include the renewable generators. And the contracts will take the form of uh, CFDs, or known as contracts for difference. Beyond that, we don't know much else. But the key thing we want to know, shareholders and the industry wants to know at this stage, is what will be the price of those CFDs? So the funds and the generators will presumably give up their rocks, which are the subsidies, and the ability to get merchant revenues from current high prices, and in return, receive those fixed CFDs. But at what price? That's the crucial thing. We've attempted to do a bit of work on this. And while we don't know what price, because no one really knows at this stage, we have sort of turned the question on its head and looked at at what price would be neutral for the funds from a valuation perspective. And we've broadly got to a price of about £100 per megawatt for wind projects and about £130 per megawatt for solar projects. And you may say, why the difference? Well, because solar is currently more subsidised than wind. Most solar projects get more rocks per megawatt than wind. So if we get a higher price than those numbers, then that would be initially navacrita for the funds, and and a lower price would be nav dilutive. But here's the important thing. There are actually a number of ancillary benefits to the funds from entering into these contracts. So, for example, if you're receiving fixed revenues through these contracts with no power price risk, then that bodes for lower discount rates. So you may get separate valuation uplifts there. Your debt financing costs should be lower if you've got, again, fixed revenues. And also, the funds will be effectively helping to ease the energy crisis and limiting the potential for political risk, which is only going to benefit their ratings. So a pretty interesting scenario. It is indeed. So essentially what we're talking about here is the renewable energy companies and the government coming to an arrangement whereby, as you say, they trade off the certainty of having a fixed price uh, with a built-in margin, presumably, 
against uh, what they're doing at the moment is where, depending on how they manage their business, they're getting a, a currently higher price, but it's a variable price that's not guaranteed to persist over time. That's what you mean by merchant revenues, I think. So that could be good for all the reasons you said. There could be uh, positives on the other side, even if it means giving up some short-term revenue now. And of course, the interesting thing is that I think across the renewable energy sector, there's quite a wide difference, isn't there, in the proportion of revenue that is merchant, i.e. kind of resulting from selling into the market and from fixed uh, subsidies and so on, uh, fixed rates and subsidies. So uh, perhaps you could just remind us of what the kind of range is across the sector from, uh, you know, UK Wind at one end, uh, Green UK at one end, to some other trusts at the other end. Perhaps you could just remind us how that works. Yeah, that's right. It's always difficult to pin exact numbers on it because if you think about it, part of the revenues are fixed, so the rocks, and part is floating with the power price. So, you know, I mean, the ultimate split will depend on what the power price is today, in effect. But just to move from the one with the most merchant exposure, which is, as you say, is Greencoat UK Wind, and that split today is, top of my head, probably 80-20, 80 exposed to merchant, 20 fixed by the subsidies. Next, you've got Trig, which is broadly about 30% merchant, and the rest fixed by various PPAs, hedges, and subsidies. After that will be Foresight Solar, with about 20% exposed to merchant, and the rest fixed, again, by hedges, PPAs, and subsidies. And the others sort of trail off from there, really. Is the implication of what you were saying about essentially the break-even secure price, long-term price that would be neutral for the trusts in income terms, does it mean that there's more risk if things don't go well in these negotiations or these contract discussions, there's more risk to the solar than there is to the wind and other trusts? Well, you could take that argument because solar is more subsidised. So there's more potential risk to their subsidies. That's one way to look at it. But possibly not the right way. You seem to be implying. <laughs> no, I suppose it's, it's difficult. I mean, look, uh, all the funds really stand to benefit from the government giving a sensible offer, really, on, on the CFD. If they don't, and you know, we go down the road of windfall taxes or other subsidy alterations, then it's difficult to say. Basically, you know, which funds will suffer more. But the key thing is the fact that solar is more subsidised. These negotiations are being conducted by sort of the industry via a kind of industry body rather than individually trust by trust. Am I right about that? Yeah. So as far as we know, at the moment, the government are out there negotiating with the major utilities. There's actually a Bloomberg article this morning to that effect. I think the key thing is, as far as I understand, it's not likely to be individual rates for, for different projects or different utilities. It will be one fraud industry rate. So the government doesn't have to go and negotiate with individual funds and individual projects. It's just come up with a, a sensible and economic rate, which works for all parties. The other thing worth noting is on the, on the dividend front as well. You know, there's a number of ancillary benefits, but a further one would be the visibility over dividends in these funds. You know, if, if you are locking in for 10 or 15 years by these contracts. You'll get more secure dividend potential, of course. And so unless there was perhaps, uh, let's assume these uh, negotiations go quite well, Unless there was a change of government and then you might have a different regime which might take a different view, this government certainly made very clear it's going to rule out windfall profit toxes uh, across the energy sector. So that would be a positive. How has the market taken all this in terms of the share prices of the discounts? I mean, most of the renewable energy companies have been reporting good NAVs, obviously because they have been capturing higher prices, offsetting some of the impact of higher interest rates and so on. Uh, but what's been the, the sort of experience over the last, uh, say, three months uh, on this issue? So a windfall tax got priced in 
at some point. There was, a, there was a bit of weakness in the funds in late May when it was first mooted. But since then, share price performance of the funds has been pretty good because we've had the Q2 NAVs come through. And those NAVs have generally been very strong on the back of near-term power price exposure and the inflation outperformance, where the funds are pencing in inflation numbers, which are actually much lower than the market's printing. So it's been pretty good. What I would say on the potential for the CFD and the, and the benefits that might arise from that is that doesn't look priced in. I mean, the shares in most cases have barely budged over the last week. And what we think the market is waiting for is that pricing announcement, basically, and just to make sure that it's a sensible and economic price for the industry. And we don't know what the timing is on that, or at least I don't know. Do you know? We don't. Again, I was reading this morning that they're looking to put measures in place for 1st of October. And we know there's a mini budget now due for next Friday. But in terms of the actual pricing announcement, we don't know. And all this is going to supersede the big review of the electricity market that has been going on anyway. Uh, it started last year before Ukraine and all that. Is that now kind of out of the picture? I think that still happened, but that's a structural change that has to be further down the track. I mean, the, the fixing via the CFDs is to get ahead of the problem before this winter. Yeah, so they're firefighting rather than uh, making a long-term strategic change. Okay, well, that's very helpful, Matt. Thank you. So we'll move on and we'll talk about a couple of other trusts that have reported recently in the infrastructure space. Um, I'm thinking about uh, INPP, International Public Partnerships, and DGI9, this rather interesting digital infrastructure trust. Tell us what you think about those and generally about what's been happening in the infrastructure space to the extent that uh, there's been some news. So INPP reported just over a week ago. It was generally a good set of numbers. We had NAV strength for the half of just short of 9%. And a large part of that came from increases in, in the near-term inflation assumptions. And what INPP was effectively doing there was catching up. So it last reported as at 31st of December, and it hadn't reflected the higher UK RPI and inflation assumptions in other jurisdictions in his numbers at that point. So what they were doing is increasing the inflation assumptions to reflect the near-term high inflation prints. So I think they increased the UK RPI assumptions to 9% in 2022 and 5% in 2023. And there was a fairly healthy NAV uplift of about 3 or 4% later to that. Um, other than that, the NAV was also strong because there was an uplift on the Thames Tideway assets. We sort of flagged that previously because they purchased an additional stake in that asset at a higher valuation. And what that transaction has effectively done is lowered the discount rate on that asset. But then we were expecting the discount rate on that asset to lower anyway as it moves out of the construction phase and into operations in 2025. And in terms of DGI9? Uh, DGI9 was another fairly good set results there operationally the two key investments aquacoms which is subsea fiber and Vern global which is a data center they're both performing well there would have been valuation uplifts to those assets given that operational performance but dji9 moved to a more conservative discount rate methodology and that effectively offset those uplifts the only other thing of note in those results really is that there is a lot of fund level debt in DGI9 now because they're due to acquire a number of projects. They're due to complete their large investment in Arkiva uh, relatively soon. That will leave the fund with fund level debt of about 500 million sterling, including the Arkiva vendor financing. And we think that obviously leads into a, a fairly sizable equity raise at uh, some point in the near future. 
And indeed, just looking across the infrastructure as a whole, including that, uh, obviously, that's more specialist area. Do you think the market will be there for fundraising? I mean, most of these uh, infrastructure trusts are still trading at a premium. Do you think the, uh, the market will be there for them? I think generally with markets, there's a lot of uncertainty around at the moment. But when you've got proven propositions, like some of these infrastructure funds, and where investors are very comfortable with how they work, the assets, how those assets are valued, then I think the market should be very supportive of those types of equity raises. And there's no apparent risk to them anyway from whatever the government might be doing uh, to raise money over the next few years, or next couple of years, obviously. Crucial couple of years. Like I said, where we get that mini budget and um, it's going to be a, a, sort of a fiscal event with tax reductions, that feels inflationary and those funds have very good inflation linkage. So it's a good way of almost hedging that type of risk. Indeed it is. Okay, finally then, Matt, I'd like to ask you about another trust which has had a lot of airtime on the podcast over the last couple of years for all sorts of reasons, some good, some bad. And that is Hypnosis, Hypnosis Songs, ticker S-O-N-G, the Music Royalty Trust, or one of the two Music Royalty Trusts that are listed in the investment trust space. They've been getting some bad PR and the shares have been uh, drifting and the discounts have been widening for... Uh, a little while now. So tell us what, uh, what's what been going on there. What's the concern and uh, uh, and what do you make of it? Yeah, that, I mean, that's it's quite an interesting scenario. So there's been two fairly critical FT articles over the last 10 days on the fund, focusing on the acquisition activity, the balance sheet and the valuations. What we would say is there's actually little new in these articles or shouldn't be anything new anyway for people sort of following the fund or you know in the well-versed and sort of the investment company sector but these articles have hit the share price i mean we're down to just below a pound today so that's below the ipo price now so they are clearly having an impact on the marginal buyer or marginal seller the issues with song are sort of interlinked and a bit complex but really we think the main issue is on the balance sheet side where They'd fully drawn on their $600 million revolving credit facility. That's an acquisition facility, which you'd normally repay with equity, but you can't raise equity because they're trading on a fairly wide discount. That discount's about 35% at the moment. And that facility is also getting quite expensive. It's floating rates. I think it's Sonia plus 325. So the all-in cost is about 6.5% at the moment. And that's more than the portfolio yields. So again, that's not a good place to be. And then the fund is fairly exposed to discount rate increases because you've got a long stream of cash flows, which makes the portfolio valuation via the DCF very discount rate sensitive. And then you've got this slight issue with the valuers, a very strange thing, where the valuers did an interview and said that the discount rate won't move. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit provocative, shall we say, yeah. Yeah, it is because interest rates are going up and look, there's a buffer. And just because the interest rates start to go up doesn't mean the discount rate should move initially. But it's still it's quite a strange thing to say. And what the market has been doing effectively is the market via the share price is implying a higher discount rate. So it's almost moving that discount rate for them by lowering the share price and winding the discount. Right. So uh, they're in a bit of a bind then, is what you're saying, until or unless they can convince the market to rethink this or to take some comfort from something they can say or do about the, the balance sheet. Um, I think there's self-help. There's self-help there. I think, you know, I've written in the past, they could arguably sell catalogues and that way you validate your portfolio valuation and you would help address the balance sheet issue. 
They could also um, try and refinance that debt. The Hypnosis Private Fund, so that the fund that Blackstone back, that recently did a securitization and raised some debt. That securitization was priced at under 6%, but it was quite a concentrated catalogue. So we've argued that when you've got a much more diverse catalogue, like the Hypnosis Songs Fund has, it's over 65,000 songs. If you securitize the catalogue, you could get a, uh, a lower interest rate, a lower financing rate there. So that's one potential course of action. And in doing that, they would term out debt from a 2025 expiry on the revolving credit facility to hopefully further down the track. Right. And meantime, the shares now yielding, what, around 5% or something. Has there been an impact on, uh, on Roundhill Music Royalty as well, the other music royalty trust? Yeah, that's sold off in sympathy. That shares the same valuer as hypnosis but crucially doesn't have the same balance sheet issues okay so that's been very very interesting so thank you for that man i just finally want to ask you about uh, you know looking ahead it's going to be a very interesting autumn as we know for all sorts of reasons for the market itself for the uk government for the renewable energy sector in particular uh, as you've been discussing but once that's out of the way i mean what are you looking out for uh, just across the trust you cover over the next uh, two three months on the energy policy side, that's going to keep us very busy on the renewables. Um, other than that, inflation prints will be interesting just because the inflation linkage through the renewables, through infrastructure, through digital infrastructure, through credit, for example, indirectly through credit. Then we'll be looking at private equity valuations as well, You know, just seeing whether there's a sort of bottoming of valuations in Q3, whether we might get a slight improvement in Q4 because those discounts look wide and um, a lot of bad news is priced in to both sort of the buyout type funds and the venture funds. Um, but yeah, all that's going to keep us pretty busy. What about fundraising in that context? I mean, we've had a couple of uh, trusts coming, a couple of IPO proposals in the last week, a sustainable farmland fund and also um, independent living REIT, kind of specially supporting housing, looking to raise some money. What do you think the market for fundraising is like at the moment, even if you're in the right kind of sectors? I mean, it's great that a few funds have sort of stuck their head above the parapet this week and put out intention to float announcements. Um, but it's tough out there. It's, it's really tough. It feels tough for follow-on raises, but you know, but new issues, which are you know, sort of new portfolios to the market, new management teams to the market, and you know, will naturally start at a smaller size. It's tough, really tough. So, no, best of luck to them. But um, watch this space. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Two interesting guests and a very, very brief summary of the main announcements of the week. I'm not going to be here next week, but I will be back from holiday the following week and we will be resuming with our normal mixture of news announcements and analysis. I look forward to talking to you again then. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.